Hey, Upsell Kateers, Helen here. Um, on today's episode, Greg and I are going to be talking with Alex Stupak, who is the king of a New York-based Mexican food empire, but was trained as a pastry chef and is one of the smartest and most talented pastry minds going on right now. In keeping with that theme, I have a pastry surprise for Greg. If you like what you hear here on the Eater Upsell, please take a second to subscribe and also to rate us on iTunes or whatever platform it is that you listen to podcasts on. We'd love to see those five golden stars shining right next to the name Eater Upsell. It's the most beautiful thing I can think of seeing. Okay, let's talk to Greg. Okay, so what's this interesting thing that you've heard about me? God, now I'm thinking of all the things. Oh my God, wait, give me some options. What are the cool things that they could be? Tell me all the interesting things about you. Oh, geez, I don't know. You know, everybody's got some weird stuff in their past. Um, I mean, except for me. So no, you're totally flawless. Yeah, always been a cool guy. (laughs) (laughs) Always been a cool dude. You know, so I got nothing to hide. You have nothing to hide. Yeah, you have no secrets. Nope, no secrets. No, no, like shameful holes in your (laughs) personal experience. I was in an acapella group. You were not. Yeah, like a good one, or or like a fake bad one. It was in a real one. What was your punning name? Oh, it's so. It's so silly because I wanted the I wanted to have a, a punning name for it, and this the mascot, the school mascot, it was Tulane University. The mascot was the pelican, so I was like, "Duh, it's the fucking Acapelicans." Oh my god, yes, it clearly is. But the powers that be, the person that was running the thing, decided that we should be them, and I was like, "That was the name of Van Morrison's group." Yeah, that was like a Still, punning band I, name. I was like a freshman; it didn't. I had no sway. Uh huh. But I did do vocal percussion, so. Whoa. Well, that's the nerdiest thing Vocal you can do. Vocal percussion is beatboxing. That's can right. you beatbox? Because um, you know what I'm about to ask you to do. Not for free, no. But guess what? You are paid to be on this podcast. Oh, well, <laughs> um, I don't I don't want to ruin the microphones with my spittle. But anyway, you, you were saying that you... <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay, well, maybe We are, we are not leaving the... this room uh-huh. until you beatbox. Oh, my God. No, I have literally not done this in like 15 years. This is so disappointing. It has nothing to do with food. This is Helen. auditory blue balls. It, yes. Uh, <laughs> maybe at the end of the, maybe the, and the outro, I'll do some of it. Um, in the meantime, mm-hmm. um, you have covered the New York restaurant world for how long? Now it's seven years. And in that time, what have been some of the, the greatest, most massively sweeping trends that have hit the New York restaurant world? Oh, well, let's see. It's been things like poke and grain bowls recently. Before that, it was like cronuts and fancy milkshakes. And oh my God, there's a box. Greg, you've never had a cronut. I've never had a cronut. I can not tell you how many posts I've written about them. Um, I was at one point in time holding one in my hands. And yet you did not put it in your mouth. We were doing some eater activity, a scavenger hunt, actually. And somebody was racing to get a clue and they bumped into me and it literally flew out of my hands and dropped on the floor. The cronut that got away. Yeah. And I was like, I was like, oh, I was like, oh, great. I've never fucking had one of these. Now I'm going to. And it just it was. Yeah. And I was like, I'm not eating the floor cronut. And Does have you not... just like carried that in your heart for years. No, I kind of thought that the world was, you know, trying to tell me something. You know, you should never have a cronut. Not yet, Greg. Guess what? Said. Guess what? Yeah. The world is saying today. Oh, my God. The world says today, Greg. Greg, open this Helen, incredibly beautiful you're the box. best. Our. You're... Infamous AP Dan was the mastermind behind this. Oh my gosh, Dan. All right, here it is. Turns out he hates it when we call him AP Dan. (gasps) And it's on a plate. Oh, wow. 
Smells like a cronut. Keeping in mind that podcasting is an entirely auditory medium, mm-hmm. let's describe for our beautiful listeners what this pastry looks like. Um. Okay, so it, to me it kind of looks like it's, it's definitely browner than I kind of thought it would look like or kind of remember in real life. Like it's kind of brown and kind of craggly. As befits something that, that is a fried, yeah, is, yeah, fried is laminated. in the lineage, lineage of a of a croissant. Mm-hmm. It has a very nice circular ring of, uh, I would say, what did you call that? Mauve colored cream. Oh, yeah, that is mauve. And then it looks like it has a raisin on top. Yeah, maybe. I would. You know what? I might be a cherry. It I, might be a dried yeah, cherry. Yeah, dried cherry. And there's no goo extruding from, oh, no, there's a little bit of goo. Because they don't, like, bake it with the stuff inside. That's not how you make a donut. They f- pipe it in, yeah. right? All right. So? So enough talk. Enough talk. Put that cronut in your mouth. Eat, uh, eat the cronut. All right. Here we go. <laughs> yes. Oh, it's, like, oozing out. It's, like, disgustingly oozing. I mean, it, this looks delicious, but, like, that ooze was... Really visceral. Yeah, it's on my pants. It's like bloody. Mm -hmm. Wow, Wow. you look like you murdered something with your face. I mean, I kind of (laughs) did. How is it? (laughs) I will say. Glop on your hand. Yeah, I know. Other than the fact that it looks like I just got slimed. Um, With like blood mm -hmm. and viscera. Yeah. Because it turns out this is a black cherry Valrona Mm -hmm. chocolate. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, it's so gross. Fried um, donut. No, I mean, is it is it gross? Is it gross? No, it's gross that I'm like licking um, <laughs> all this like slime off and powdered sugar off my hands and that it's all over my pants too. Oh, man. Um, but how's the it cronut? tastes delicious. You know what? I think I like this cronut so much. I think that you've earned your vocal percussion. <gasps> what? More beetle beatbox. <laughs> That was amazing. That was amazing. There Do you more. Go. Do more. Oh, well, get me another <laughs> impossible <laughs> to find food and maybe all the. Oh, this transaction makes sense to me. So our guest today is Alex Stupak, the chef proprietor of a handful of really awesome restaurants. A growing empire. A growing empire. Um, very casual. But then there's also a tasting experience. Yeah, so how many Empeon expressions do you have right now? Uh, right now we have three. We have Taqueria, which was the original, and then Cocina, and then we have our bar on uh, at Tompkins Square Park, uh, which is Al Pastor. And then you also have secretly inside Cocina, the chef's table, which yes, is not in- really a separate restaurant, but is a totally different it, it's not experience. a separate restaurant, but it is a completely different experience. Um, everything that we serve at that table is not served anywhere else in the company. And again, for us, it's just kind of a test pilot. I do think it will become its own thing, its own entity someday. So we're talking to you. Um, I mean, this will obviously be released at some point <laughs> near a different date, but we were talking to you one day after what I would imagine would be the busiest day for your restaurant group. Yeah, yesterday was Cinco de Mayo, which is uh, the equivalent of the zombie apocalypse if you're uh, if you're Mexican focused in any way, shape, or form. It's busier for us than New Year's Eve. It's it's the busiest day of the year. So how did you how did you make it through? Did you go to Did you stay at one restaurant? Did you like not go to any of them? Did you? What I, was um, your strategy? 
I, I didn't go near Takaria. Uh, Takaria is five years old and they kind of know what they're doing uh, and they do a great job at it. I started my day at six in the morning at Al Pastor because we did, um, man, we do a ton of catering orders out of there. So people are ordering nachos and man, Al Pastor we've, tacos. We've gotten and- catering or actually our, one of our sister verticals did. And then they gave us the leftovers and it was like the best thing to have leftover and pay own catering. taco day at Eater. I, I, I just hope it showed up okay. It's still, uh, it's, it's still a new thing for us. <laughs> man, great. no, we were like, oh, look, it's a giant hotel pan full of carnitas. <laughs> I mean, people send us food pretty regularly and we're fairly jaded at this point. And then like this table full of MPO and Al Pastor food showed up and we lost our collective minds. Yeah. Right on. Which was great. Okay. So it started <laughs> at 6am yes. at Al Pastor. Yeah. 6am at Al Pastor because we were putting out a ton of catering and, and last year, um, Al Pastor was brand new. I think we were like a month old and Cinco de Mayo happened and we were, we were not ready. Um, it was, it got ugly. So this year I, you know, had all my best people there and we were there and to make sure it went smooth. And then that's it. Then I walked over to Cocina and served some lovely people at the kitchen table. And that was my day. That's that awesome. And very um, human. I tip my hat to whoever got a reservation at the kitchen table on Cinco de Mayo. That's just a cool thing to do. You know, and, and, and they were great. I was a little worried because it, again, it's, you can't complain again, busiest day of the year for us. So we make a lot of money, but you're getting people who come in the restaurant wearing sombreros and uh, you know, yeah. all that stereotypical shit. Sort of so. reductive, like white people version of what Mexican is. Yeah, you know, like a taco bowl or, you know, just blankly referring to people as Hispanic as opposed to what they actually are. You know, that's a Donald Trump reference if yeah. you're listening to this after the news cycle has <laughs> shifted. Um, yeah. So how did how did you come to Mexican food? Because your your background is in pastry and it's not just in pastry. It's in like weird pastry, weird pastry, yeah. like super high end, really, really intellectual Alinea WD-50. Yeah, it. Um, I chose it. Um, there were some influences in my life that helped me to choose it, but I chose it. I, I was kind of going through this existential crisis where like a lot of us chefs were weird. We have this magic number of like, well, we have to have a restaurant by 30, which is honestly stupid. It, it's a stupid thing, but that's a thing amongst a lot of young, ambitious cooks. So I was, you know, around the age of 25, 26, and I was like, well, what am I going to do? You know, you work for a guy like Grant Ackett's and you work for a guy like Wiley Dufresne and you get really close to creativity, you start to understand what it is, um, which is, you know, trying to do what's unexpected or trying to do what you don't know how to do. So my resume and the third coming of molecular gastronomy, even though that was the, the logical path, the logical progression, it, it was depressing. Um, it, like writing that business plan, it became like, well, you know, it, it, someone who's cooked pasta every day for the last 20 years, uh, I, di- I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. And so I, I was going through this crisis of what did I want to do? And I wasn't sure. Now, in tandem with that, I was eating a lot of Mexican food. Um, I fell in love with Lauren Ressler, who is um, half Mexican, grew up in L.A. with a lot of really good um, of a certain style of Mexican cooking. And that kind of in our household became our adopted or my adopted go to. And it, it just began to taste normal for me. It became like, you know, it was my it didn't even taste Mexican to me anymore. It just tasted like good food. And all that, along with the idea that, well, you start going to Mexico and you start discovering how rare it is. Um, you start seeing these, you know, products that you'd never seen before. So for me, discovering Papalo or Papicha, is it Mexican? Yes. But for me, it was just about new the same way that like you learned about 
the way Albert Adria manipulated ingredients or the first time as a cook that you got to trust, uh, taste foie gras or dust the dirt off of a truffle. So all of that, plus I knew the idea that if I were going to do this, it was going to be blood in the water, which oddly attracts me to it more. So that's why I opened a taqueria. So was there an experience before, you know, you got really excited and started to explore Mexican food where you had a similar period of exploration? Was it like, you know, for lack of a better term, the kind of like the Adria stuff or that kind of fine dining? Did you have to go in as sort of a new person and like, I don't know, was there a sort of similar brain path? What got you into molecular gastronomy? That was, it, for me, it was all about, and, and for the record, that term, I had never heard that term when I cracked my first El Bulli book. Um, I heard that term way later and for me it was about, well, it started with, I was working for Ken Oranger at Clio and he told, they didn't have a pastry chef there at the time. I was just a cook. I was on my externship for culinary school and he was like, well, you got to go down in the basement and make desserts. And I said, well, I don't do that, which is a really shitty thing to say to a boss, um, in retrospect, <laughs> but, um, he was, I was like, I'm just not excited about pastry. And he, he handed me Albert Adria's first book and he said, just read it. And I did. And it wasn't about dessert for me. It was just about the ideas were so um, artistic and strong. The idea of deconstructed tiramisu or the idea of something that's always hot is now cold or something that's always savory is now sweet. And I, I, I started wanting to be in that basement making desserts. And then I started to not want to leave that basement. And that that's how I ended up becoming a pastry chef. It was just about... Um, partially about autonomy because most chefs don't like dealing with dessert. And if you're a sous chef, you're, you're at the end of the day, you're a whipping post. You're doing, you're doing all the ordering. You're, you're, you're running the line. Whereas as a pastry chef, I got to kind of hide away in a different kitchen and deal with a set of skills that the savory team didn't want to touch, which meant you could at a very young age actually put ideas on a menu, which was exciting. Like at the age of 22 to be able to do that, that was really cool and important to me. It just got weird because I, I started getting better and better pastry chef jobs. And then I looked back and I was like, shit, I've been doing this for 10 years. And all of a sudden you're an expert and you're like creating the conversation. Sort of. Uh, I mean, like, but an expert in like a very specific niche thing. Um, I never I never had any desire to I could do it, but I never had any desire to make 50 pounds of pastry cream or fill a or fill a case or I've only made three wedding cakes in my life. And they were for people that were either really close to me or someone who said you can literally do whatever you want. So what year was this that you like got into pastry? Was that like 2002 or something like that? It was, okay, so I graduated culinary school 2001 and yeah, it was 2002. I, um, I took a job in Boston as a sous chef and the pastry chef uh, either quit or uh, got fired, depending on who you ask. And being an opportunist, I just said, well, okay, well, I'll fill in. I said, here's the deal. I'll be the sous chef and the pastry chef, and you don't have to pay me more money. Just put my name on the menu and let me make whatever I want for dessert. And that was my first pastry. Yeah, that was my first pastry chef job, um, which then turned into another job and into another job, which ended up being uh, Alinea, amazingly. Which, like of all places. Yeah, yeah, Alinea when I was 25, which was really cool. And then, then I moved to New York, and I was Wiley's pastry chef for, uh, I think, four years. And that was my only job ever in New York City. What, ma what made you decide to come to New York? It was uh, it was actually personal. Uh, Lauren and I, Lauren, my wife, uh, who's also a pastry chef, she moved to Chicago after me. Like it was a dare and she took the dare. Like, I, like 
I was like, well, just so you know, we were, we were living together more or less. And I was like, well, I'm moving to Chicago and I'd love for you to come. And she was like, well, I don't want to come. And she didn't. And I moved anyways. Um, three months later, she ended up moving out and she then we lived together. Bluff. Yeah. You called um, her bluff. Someone called someone's bluff. And Chicago was great, but we kind of had decided, well, we're like a real couple now. And, um, it's not where it just never felt like home. Uh, she wanted to go back to the East coast. There was no way in hell I was ever going back to Boston. So we looked at New York and then when we looked at New York, I was like, well, there's only one restaurant in all of New York that would actually let me cook the way that I've been cooking. So I sent, I sent Wiley a letter and said like, look, I know you have a great pastry chef. Um, but if anything ever changes, give me a call. And then like literally a month later, he was like, oh, by the way, Sam Mason's opening this restaurant and let's talk. No, that, that was it. It was fate. I kind of say sometimes I've like, you know, chatted with chefs about, you know, their influences and stuff. And they'll maybe point to like one restaurant during one year, like, oh, the best uh, uh, French laundry 2004. That was that's what I aspire to or whatever. It, it seems like you worked at Alinea and WD-50 during, I think, what a lot of people would consider to be like those peak periods for like what they were doing. Maybe um, the cool thing about it for me though, is that like four years is actually a short period of time in the span of a career. Like I only worked for, for Grant for I think 18 months, but you remain friends with those guys. They actually become your friends and they are truly creative and progressive in every sense of the word. So it's like you continue to, even though you only, you're, you're no longer working there for them, you continue to learn just by watching because you, you were, you were in the kitchen for a minute. So you understand the processes, but then you see what they're continuing to come up with. So um, the dividends on it are incredible. Have you been following um, the Alinea renovation oh, yeah. slash overhaul? Oh, yeah. How do you feel about it? I'm dying to go back. Just I'm, I've eaten at Alinea three times now, and every time it's it's just gotten better and better. Um, I, I, I would refuse to ask to go um, until, like, it's, it's a new restaurant. I yeah. know it's 11 years old, but it's still a new restaurant. I just always believe in letting the chef have a minute. Because you know how it is when it's new. Everyone's sort of knocking the door down and they're coming over the walls. So, um, but I'm dying to go back. I think it's so interesting that you're, you know, you still collaborate with some of those people. I mean, you, you, it's like, it sounds like you guys are all still kind of following each other and oh, yeah. like part yeah. of some greater sort of community. Whereas I think a lot of people aren't like that when they leave a certain place or leave a certain job, you know? Yeah. I, I, which is unfortunate. Um, I'm really lucky. I mean, those guys are the guy. I mean, Ken Oranger too in Boston. I mean, we're all we're all very good friends, and I'm very proud that um, I have restaurants now. I mean, that that's the thing where you look up to these guys, but you also want to either equal or in some way top them. Um, Grant for one, Grant for me though is 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 the big one because he um, his his creativity is uh, is somehow like tireless. And again, I people don't understand it, but uh, I I. If you listen to like Radiohead, which I think is an incredibly creative band, and you ask Michael or uh, if you ask uh, Tom York who his greatest influence is, he'll say Michael Stipe. And if you really look at REM and Radiohead, you can't really draw a line in terms of like they're similar. And I think that's really cool. So the idea of opening a restaurant that um, was doing uh, Alinea esque food in in two thousand five or whatever, it it would have even though that is to the public, a more creative thing. Um, for me, tacos or trying to figure out masa was more creative. And 
I'm looking forward to seeing, I don't know what that manifests in. I think that question of creativity is a really essential one, right? Like you nailed it. I think that there's a certain type of diner, probably the majority of diners who look at a deconstructed plate or something that's like very vertical or has like weird, crazy curly cues going on. And they say, oh, this is so creative. But once you encounter that thought process a lot with dishes, you start seeing it over it's and a over format. again. It's and if it's a format, by definition, it you can continue to be creative within the format to an extent, but then sooner or later it starts to um, it starts to fizzle and wear out. Like it start like I, it started with basic. One of the most basic rules of creativity is just just to change one thing about it. So it's like if if this is always sweet, now it's savory, or if it's always cold, now it's hot, or and then you started to see in that movement of cooking, it's like, okay, well, we're going to make a foam. Okay, well, that was creative. Now we're going to dehydrate the foam. Okay. Well, now we're going to take the foam that we dehydrated and we're going to freeze it in liquid nitrogen and we're going to smash it. And it's like, it, like, it's just extrapolation upon extrapolation, which means that like the, that, that phase of modernity, that, that hyper manipulation is, it's still worthy of doing, but it's not avant-garde anymore by definition it's not avant-garde and you see like cooking now it's like the pendulum has swung so far the other way which everything now and again you're seeing it, it people are copying um it's like okay well now everything is of the place right. everything and i get it well okay well we're in copenhagen and now it's of the place and but okay well now i'm an eskimo and it's of the place or i'm a or i'm native american and it's of the place and and you you can start to see so that that also becomes a um, a box, a box that you're, you're working within. And it's not a bad thing, but then sooner or later, it's like, well, what's next? Yeah. What, what is the future? Like a bunch of different patterns or something. Well, like the path keeps moving forward, but you're still on the same damn path, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. okay, like we're dehydrating it, but like, we know we're going to do something else next. And, and then to pull way back, I mean, I think the elderly cookbooks, which you mentioned mm -hmm. a little bit ago are so fascinating as documents I don't know if you've ever taken a look at them, Greg, but there are... <laughs> I've never cracked... I've seen them on a bunch of bookshelves. There are a, I should a open billion one of them. I see one. Right. No, well, they're amazing. And what they what they really are, I mean, in theory, they're cookbooks, but what they actually are, are absolute like how-to manuals for creativity, mm -hmm. right? And when you read them, you realize that, you know, Farrah and Adria, more than anything else, really was just obsessed with learning and obsessed with discovering. And so he would do this thing where the restaurant would be closed for six months and he would just experiment and then he'd reopen and then he'd close again and then he'd totally overhaul the menu and he would just move on to the next thing and all of this intelligence and all of this these facts and these concepts would synthesize as the restaurant would evolve and it's sort of speaking to what you're saying like masa is more creative if you've already maxed out with you know making curly cues out of sugar sure because uh, you're still learning yeah with Ferran, i think the importance was that it was about talking about things in clear terms so, oh, well, this is creative. Well, well, what does that mean? What what defines it as that? And let's document it. Um, he said something very interesting, and I'll paraphrase, but like he said something very interesting in um, a demonstration once, which was that, was Escoffier really the most brilliant cook of his time, or was he only one who could maybe read or write and actually took the time to write something down? Yeah. It's very interesting. And I, I mean, as writers, as journalists, I mean, you know, it's like 100 years from now, all new people. And thoughts and culture and everything will have shifted drastically to the point if we were reborn, uh, we wouldn't recognize it anymore. So all you have at the end of it is the document, yeah, which is fascinating to think about. And the durability of the document. I mean, I think it, it actually relates to 
something we were looking into um, not too long ago with Eater. We were looking at the oldest restaurants in New York um, and classics. And, and, you know, it turns out that all of these places that we love, that we think of as the iconic, really old New York restaurants like Keen's Steakhouse or Katz's Deli, um, they're great because they're old, but it also turns out they all own their buildings. Right. And so <laughs> the reason they've lasted for forever is not probably because they were the best of their era. It's because they were the ones who had the document that persisted. Like, you know, they were like, like Escoffier maybe was the only one who wrote it down. Like Keynes was maybe the only one who thought to buy the building. And hopefully so, like, stayed in the same around. family so that yeah. the operations keep getting passed down. Yeah. They so, had like, the, they had the, the, the intelligence to fortify. Yeah. But like, so you look at the present and you're like, well, what, what do we think the past is? Like, what do we think greatness was? So much of that is informed by just like, well, who had the record that made it to today? Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. And again, the idea of hunkering down, it, it's a lot of uh, talk of the town right now. Everyone's talking about the restaurant apocalypse. Oh, really? And yeah. Yeah. I mean, everyone's talking about, okay, well, minimum wage is going up and it's going to keep going up. And then this law is going to change and that, and we're all going to close and we're all going to die. Like that, that's kind of like... You're hearing that a lot right now, <laughs> um, which, again, like I, I don't think I think that's a little bit of an exaggeration. Um, it's refreshing to hear you say that, man, because every time I hear people talking about this, I'm like, I'm very sensitively listening and I very much want to hear everyone's thoughts on this. But it's also kind of like as many risky restaurants open, five dumb fuck whatever bar and grills open and yep. stay open for 20 years. And they're doing fine. And they're not they're they're not going to ban tipping. <laughs> and it, it's it. Uh, do I think all those things like do I think maybe one day tipping will become completely defunct? Yes. And do I think that, OK, so this tasting menu used to cost one hundred and twenty bucks and now it cost one hundred and sixty eight. Fine. Does that mean that dollar pizza in New York City is now going to cost two dollars? I don't think so. I don't think you're going to see that happen. What I do think, though, in thinking creatively, I think you're going to see a lot of new business models. Um beyond the QSR or even beyond the ghost restaurant, I don't even know what the hell those are yet. But that's fascinating to think about because, I mean, like, look, if it's a catalyst for change and that change, like with change comes new, fresh ideas, you have to look at it that way. You have to look at it positively. So you're, you have three restaurants, you're gearing up to open your fourth. Mm -hmm. um, they're all, they all serve a variety of purposes. I feel like you keep them fresh and interesting. And I'm just kind of curious, like, I know there's not one simple answer, but How'd you make it work? And did you have to make any sacrifices or any changes after the restaurants were open to keep it going and to spin off another one? Yeah, hundred um, percent. And thank you, by the way. Like what we're trying to do is, like you said, they all serve a purpose. I'm trying to, whatever that purpose is, I'm, I'm, I'm always trying to get closer to identifying it and making it more of that purpose. So look, in terms of what I love about cooking, I love super high end, you know, ego driven stuff. And I also like nachos and fried chicken. And, and I don't like those for commercial sellout reasons. I actually enjoy cooking them and eating them. So if, if Al Pastor is supposed to be this bar where everything's on paper plates and if you were drunk, what do you want to eat? Well, that's why I'm going to put Mexican style hot dogs on the menu next year, wrapped in bacon with avocado and mayonnaise and all that, like they have in Mexico city. Or that's why we're going to put a frozen drink machine behind the bar. Let's make it more of that. And I, I look at all the restaurants that way. To answer your question, though, how do you stay open? It, it's tricky. Um, we, I, I be, we, we grew um, for for like for a couple reasons. One, I, I opened Cocina out of ego. It was stupid. Um, everyone told me Taqueria wasn't going to work, and then it worked uh, 
freakishly well. And I looked at all this money in the bank account and I should have kept it because then maybe my son would go to college. Um, now it's a little <laughs> iffy. But I, I saw that money and w we were three months old. And I was like, no, we're going to open another restaurant right now because we can. And years later, I look at that and it's like, yes, we could and we did. But that doesn't mean we should. Um, because the team wasn't ready yet. I wasn't ready yet. I didn't have an idea. I didn't even have a clear idea of what Cocina was yet, which is why it's changed so many friggin' times in five years. And we're still kind of honing in on, well, what is it? Um, I opened Al Pastor because I was honestly scared of becoming irrelevant. You know, we were, and I know that sounds crazy, but it's different now. Like it, it, it staying powers, like staying within the dialogue is, um, it's tricky and you see your contemporaries opening a restaurant every six months and it, um, like I would be lying if you start, you don't start to get a little panicky. So we opened a bar, um, we opened a bar and we said, okay, well we'll sell alcohol and the alcohol will pay the rent and it allow us to figure out how to get our, uh, masa game together and figure out how to grind corn. And that's why we did that. We also did it because we had some really good people that we didn't want to lose, but we had some new good people coming in. So where the hell do you put them all? And that's actually probably the biggest reason we're opening the fourth one. We're actually going, okay, well, if we're never going to close or if we're going to stay in New York City and we're going to ha really have staying power, we're, how, are, how are we going to do that? And we're opening a restaurant that it's going to have uh, a lot of seats and it, it's basically going to double the size of Empeon. It's going to force us to actually become a real restaurant group, so to speak. What's the difference between a fake restaurant group and a real restaurant group? Um, an HR department, like, <laughs> uh, I, uh, yeah, you know, like a COO or, you know, oh, yeah, like, you're going to be real. Yeah. All that, you know, that's like, there's a sustainability issue. It's like, you can run your restaurant, like these three little restaurants downtown and squeeze them for cash. But at the end of the day, someone slips and falls in front of your restaurant and they're going to call someone to sue. Like they're going to call you. You're going to have to deal with that. Or you're going to have to deal with compliance issues like HR, all that, all that stuff that you're talking about. And you start to realize it's like, well, shit, I'm not cooking anymore. I'm like, not even, I was like, you look back, it's like, I, I haven't, I didn't even put on my chef whites today. And when you think about that, you're like, well, okay, well now I, this is the reason I got into this. And now I'm not even doing that anymore. Well, how do you afford the people who are um, oddly passionate? Well, I went to business school and I'm I'm really good at finance. Like, how do you how do you get that person on your team? Um, you can't do it, or me, I can't do it with two tiny little things in the East Village and Takri. I like we're not. So you have to you have to do this big thing. And for us, it was Midtown. I love that you're opening in Midtown. Midtown is the neighborhood where either the Eater Upsell Studios are based. It's a much maligned neighborhood amongst kind of food lovers and you know restaurant nerds, even though there are some great restaurants in this are there, neighborhood. Are there really? Oh, totally. There's some classics, you know, the modern 21 Club, uh, Wulang Yi. I'm just feeling very skeptical about all of this. <laughs> Keen's Steakhouse. I mean, there are some, there are some proper classics. It's just not a very, the, I think the things that are not great are pretty bad and the layout is not as fun. But we're opinion, getting an empire. Yeah. I have some opinions about this and cause I'm looking at, I think you, you, the most important word you said, Greg was neighborhood. And I think you have to treat it like a neighborhood. I think you have to think about it that way. So rents here are probably factually the highest than they are anywhere else in Manhattan. So very high barrier for entry, hard to get in. Um, so you have a lot of restaurants that are I, I, not that good, that are grandfathered in, and they can get away with serving, um, you know, well, here's four shitty 
IQF shrimp on a half melted bed of crushed ice with a with a like a ramekin of ketchup for twenty nine dollars and they're busy and they're going to get that money. And I, I feel like it's like, well, they got in there and maybe they were trying once and they're not trying anymore and they're taking it for granted. So my goal with the new one, I don't want it to be considered the best Mexican restaurant in Midtown. I want it to be considered an awesome Midtown restaurant. Like one of our goals is to kind of like, we're not changing our focus, but we're trying to take the word Mexican out of the dialogue a bit. Because like when you think, are you in the mood for Italian? Do you say that? Or do you, are you in the mood for really badass pasta? Right. So Italian cooking has, their, New York City has developed its own version of it that if you were to remove it, from New York City, it would be like removing a vital organ. We wouldn't we wouldn't survive without that. Like we're we're here, and there's a, there's other cuisines that have done that in New York, and I, I feel like so long as we keep talking about Mexican, Mexican, Mexican authenticity, this is from Oaxaca or this is from there, we're actually holding ourselves back. Where it's like, is your favorite restaurant in Midtown because it's Midtown, or is it because it's French, you know what I mean? It's like, I, I think people think about like, say a restaurant like La Bernadette, it's French, but I think people think about it often more as a seafood restaurant. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Than a, than a French restaurant or a French seafood restaurant. It's just a great seafood restaurant. Cause it's transcended that box. Yeah. You know? I, I, I want to see our chosen genre do that. And I think Midtown's a great place to try to test that experiment. Yeah. Well, I mean, Midtown is in many respects, um, Danny Meyer likes to call captive audience dining because so much of the population of the New York area works in Midtown, right? So you have this incredibly robust daytime population. You're trapped trapped here. Either order maple or go eat somewhere for an expensive lunch. And so you get those places like the ones you mentioned with the the like incredibly shitty, incredibly expensive shrimp cocktail where they can, they can perpetuate forever because people are stuck here and they're stuck with them. And I'm really excited to start getting good restaurants here because you can only eat maple so many days. I mean, I stand by, I stand by the argument that there are some great restaurants in Midtown, but maybe not, there's nothing like an Empeon. I'll say that. Right. And, and we, we want to try our hardest. We're going to keep our DNA. That that's the thing. It's like, we are going to, there's that Venn diagram. You want to be of the place and be respectful of the place. Um, I, I, I feel like sometimes, unfortunately, restaurateurs, um, they think of Midtown, like they say, okay, well, of the place is douchebag. Right. I think that sucks. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. Like, okay, well, we're going to put $38 martinis on the menu or whatever the hell we're going to do. Um, I think that's lame, but I think you can be of the place, but also be not lose yourself in, in the, in the process. And then, uh, well, a third ring of that diagram, we were like, can you inject again? Can it be new? Can it be provocative? Um, that's the best thing. I mean, I think the best chefs and restaurateurs have, uh, this, um, unreasonable goal, but I think it's a really, uh, important one, which is like, we want, um, success, but then we also want to be loved or revered for it. And we want it all on our friggin' terms, yeah. which is really weird when you say it out loud. That's like, to do that is not reasonable. I mean, it's the ultimate paradox of, I think, any kind of success, right? Is like, you want to be exactly who you are. You don't want to change anything and you want everyone to adore you for it and also reward you with a lot of money. I mean, I feel like you've cracked the code at Cocina specifically though, in terms of that being both very accessible and also, you know, very unique. And there's something that's, that's challenging if you poke around the menu and how you order, you can have a bunch of different experiences. Um, thank you. I, I think, I think that's right. I I think that though, like 
what we're going to try to do is uh, describe it. I, I think the the new one is going to, I think the new one's dining room is going to be very Cosina-like in its a la carte phases, which then goes like, well, what do you do with Cosina? And, I, and I'm, I'm doing that to the company to force that. I mean, I did that with Al Pastor where it's like, because it, 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 it's an East Village thing. East Village, again, as a neighborhood, you walk down the sidewalk and there's all those A-frames, all those chalkboard A-frames on, on the sidewalk, which are saying, hey, come in here for happy hour. And happy hour in Midtown basically means that you're in a restaurant during happy hour. That's right. all it means. <laughs> yeah. Whereas in in the East Village, uh, it's real. Um, people walk in Al Pastor and they're like, "Well, what's your what's your happy hour offering?" Oh man, I do not think about happy hours in Midtown at all. We do have a perpetual question because we don't have good bars near the office, so maybe. maybe I feel so bad. At, I feel so bad at my job whenever people ask where they should get a drink around here. It's like <laughs> it's a wasteland. It's like okay, you want to hear the spiel? Uh, let me cut to the chase. There's no good place. But that's interesting. So in the East Village, like you actually have to offer an enticement like you have to compete against the other people in your block it's either play the game in that way or you're a a sushi spot and then it's like you're either the all you can eat sushi spot or you're the no frontage no menu 180 yeah like like you see a lot of those manifest in the east village which is interesting so again it's like we 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 serve we started like the cheeseburger taco was discovered in Mexico, um, and we wrote Jordana and I wrote about it in our book. But um, we offered that at Cocina, um, but it didn't feel right there. And but now I I love the taco, but it belongs more at Al Pastor. So uh, long story short, there's still a lot of things we're doing at Cocina that are for the neighborhood that don't feel right for the restaurant. Which means like sooner or later you're gonna have to. It's like either you acquiesce to the. Re- it's like open for brunch. Right. Which I really don't want to do there. Um, and we won't, but it's either open for brunch um, and hunker down and make the menu inexpensive and try to remain there for 20 years or be like the next hearth or the next prune or uh, demolish the frontage and, you know, remove the signage and make it tasting menu only. And, and then if you're doing that, well, then it doesn't matter what neighborhood you're in, I, I think, because now you're defiant. Like back to that El Bulli thing, it's like you're, you're making the journey to there. You're, 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 you're not walking down the sidewalk looking for a lunch deal. You're, you're arriving. You're planning it three months ahead of time yeah. and like prepaying through talk. It's all very interesting to think about. But at the end of the day, like restaurants are like whether it's tasting menu only three Michelin star thing or, you know, a dive bar in the corner trying to get you um, in for cheap shots. It's all... I, I think they're 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 all very similar. They're you have to strategize this. So what brought you to the four seat tasting counter at Cocina? Like what what made you decide that you wanted to I get did, back in there and hand people food yourself? We were um well it was that like it's with all the restaurants now, um I don't have a place to stand anymore. I don't have a place to expedite, I don't have a place to be. So I wanted to make a place to be where I could stand and see my kitchen and not just stand there like an asshole. Like I, like I want to keep my hands busy. There was that. Um, the other part of it was like, I mean, we were thinking for a minute, like, well, let's just renovate the restaurant. Let's just make a tasting menu only. Let's just do that. In making that decision, you're, you are also making a decision to fire a bunch of your customers. You're basically saying, okay, well, uh, by the way, all of you people, everything you loved about this, it's not here anymore. And people don't think about, oh, well, now I can get it at Taco. They don't think that way. You, you took away what they loved. And I wasn't ready to do that. 
and like so the the big thing with the tasting table is uh dipping your toe in the water so you're gonna have a tasting menu only restaurant cool what does that mean it's another chef's counter those are a dime a dozen right now that that's not an interesting new idea so um what would it be and the answer like i don't have an answer yet i don't i don't know what that is but that 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 kitchen table allows me to put things out there and, and test the waters and see what sticks and what doesn't. So is it only you who cooks at the kitchen for that table? Uh, no, initially it was only me for like the first seven months. It was only me. Now it's only me and one other person, uh, Jason Bieberman, who's, um, uh, I guess he's our director of culinary operations at this point. Um, he's awesome been the, title. Yeah. He's, uh, he's been the chef at Taqueria. He's been the chef at Cosine. He's done everything in the whole company. So now if, if I'm not serving it, he's serving it. So I'm always interested when I, when I dine at taste encounters, when the chef and the cooks are the servers, how much thought do you put into the actual performance of it? Like um, how much thought goes into like, oh shit, like these people are watching me cook. Like they're watching me hand this over to them. Uh, Quite a bit. And like sometimes we like we'll put a new dish on the menu and we're like, OK, well, yeah, it's a good dish. But there wasn't any um, excitement to it. There wasn't any anticipation. Um, we just like we just put a new dish on the menu uh, a few days ago where we're actually literally making a piece of sushi for you, like in front of you. We're actually making the rice and we're holding it in those little Japanese wooden vessels that keep the rice warm and we're actually forming it. Are we awesome at forming it yet? No, <laughs> but it's cool because it, it throws the senses. It's like, well, why the, why the hell? Like they can see me doing it for five minutes. They're like, why is he making sushi? Like I thought we were, we were having a Mexican experience mm -hmm. and that's the whole point of it. <laughs> that, 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 it it's, it's sushi with Mexican flavors, but the, the idea is to make you to, I guess to kind of destroy expectations. You should do a tasting menu experience where it starts as your, you know, sort of brand of Mexican inspired food. And then by the end of it, it's just actually an omakase. Just like a straight Japanese. Like. Yeah, <laughs> I, I agree. I think that would be a great idea. Um, I mean, one of the ones, one of the guys who I really admire, and I don't think he, he gets credit for everything, but I don't think they talk about this is, uh, is Dave Chang because he's, what he's been really, really good at is refusing to be branded as any one particular cuisine. I, I had a meal at Co, and the awesomeness of it was it was it was all over the friggin' place, like culturally, technically, yet it all like I did, but that didn't feel weird there. That didn't feel jarring, and that's a very tricky thing to do, like to to make it seem effortless because I, I don't think it is effortless. Autor, autorism, I think. Yeah, you know, you go there because you you believe in the person who's behind it. But it's especially exciting because of the sort of fetishistic obsession that I think food culture has right now with this idea of rigid authenticity, mm -hmm. right? Like there is a certain frozen in amber thing that is Korean food or is Japanese food or is Mexican food or is American food. And when someone like Chang comes along and with like complete authority and confidence in the cooking is just like, no, no, like, we're going to do something that makes logical sense. And like, it's not some crazy like fusion for the sake of fusion thing, but like we're going to approach this deliberately and ignore all of your attempts to restrict us. Yeah. It's, I, it's thrilling. Sometimes I worry about and it. Sometimes I, this is going to sound awful. Sometimes I think the, um, the color of your skin matters. Um, I, I would say that's a, accurate. A little bit. Yeah. Like, I mean, and again, <laughs> I think Rick Bayless, um, again, chef, I respect very much, but look at what he, I think he spent a career, um, really proving how 
much he knows about authenticity and how like if you look at his TV show, it's like, look at how much time I spend in Mexico. Like, look how Mexican I am yeah. a- as an outsider. Whereas I feel like you, someone like Enrique Olvera, who's just he's Mexican. So by default, um, anything he does outside of the realms of tradition are immediately deemed as tradition or, or authenticity. It's very interesting to think about. That's really interesting. And it's, it's very subtle because like because he is Mexican, so he doesn't have to prove his Mexicanness to a predominantly white audience right. in New York. And so he lends this like imprimatur of realness even if he were to go open like a hyper focused Japanese restaurant, people mm-hmm. would still call it Mexican Japanese just because he's touching the food. Yeah. I think it's picture versus frame, but I, sometimes I don't think the frame is it's not only the the country that you're eating in or the, the the actual physical environment of the restaurant, but it's back to that the author and having this backstory on the author, which somehow affects. I, I don't know if a Japanese person hands you sushi, does it taste more sushi like than if. I hand it to you like it. it, I mean, it's it's a constant conversation, I think, like pretty frequently in the comments on Eater. And if you like look at the Yelp reviews of sushi places, people get very fixated on the idea that the sushi chef has to be Japanese. Sure. And you'll see people saying, well, oh, no, like their sushi chefs are Korean or the sushi chefs are Mexican. And it, it is, I think, you know, exactly what you're saying, like picture versus frame. There's a certain type of diner who wants to feel like they're buying not food, but like a certain tourist experience almost, you know, and they don't want the person who is the best at making this dish, making the dish. They want the person who fits their mental image of what someone probably in the 1950s who made this dish ought to look like. Yeah. I mean, like my attitude is this, is if if you want the authentic experience, go to that place. If you want to eat Koshinita Pibil for real, go to the Yucatan and, and have it. Um, I think New York City should continue to be proud of its uh, nature of subversion and kind of making things its own and absorbing them into the fold until you sort of forget almost. I mean, like back to the Italian thing, it's like people have opinions on what rice you should use for risotto that have never been to wherever the hell risotto is made <laughs> in Italy. Yeah. Um, and that's I, I suppose I can upset a certain set of people. I just find it interesting. Um, because then maybe there's more freedom to do something extremely non-traditional with that risotto. And you've spoken and, and written in your cookbook before about how like that line pretty reliably tends to be drawn between food that's cooked by white Europeans and food that's cooked by people of color. Oh, sure. Ethnic. I mean, let, let, when we say ethnic, oh, I would think of Italian cooking or Spanish cooking or French cooking as ethnic cuisine. That would like that would mean anything outside of your backyard as American is ethnic. What it really means is brown people food or yellow people food. It means food that like it means you're you're either scared to go to that country or or, or you need a tour guide or, or something. That's what that's what it really comes down to. It's like this line between a, an us and a them. And yeah. it's like, well, it's their food. So I want it to be cooked by them, which is. So Japanese cooking is ethnic food, but that's one that has allowed to has um for for a host of reasons it's 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 um become precious or it's worth a lot of money whereas like mexican cooking or chinese cooking ethnic food not worth that much money it's interesting to think about this in the context of the kind of cooking that you were doing at alinea or at wd50 that now i don't want to call it molecular cuisine but like weird food right mm-hmm. like sort of sciencey sure. cerebral weird food the best term for it, modern? i like 
I like modern. I like avant-garde the avant-garde. most because the the purpose of many of those dishes was to um, jostle people's sensibilities or be provocative in some way. Yeah. So I like avant-garde. So avant-garde, within the context of, of avant-garde cooking, there was so much drawing from the entire globe. Right. Right. And like flavors and techniques and styles, it was it was the opposite of the kind of frozen and amber rigidity that mm-hmm. people tend to apply to certain types of ethnic cuisines. But then it also itself was such a designed, defined culinary style. Like you could almost say like there is a culture of avant-gardism that is its own thing. Sure. It it has its own list of rules. And it's actually that when you look at that cooking, it had more rules. It, it, It had more rigid structure to the point where it's actually really hard to put a dish on the menu at at a place like WD-50 or Alinea. Like, there's so many filters. It's not just like, oh, well, morels are in season. Fuck, let's just saute those with some shallots. And, oh, asparagus. Oh, what grows together goes together. It's like that's a dish at so many restaurants right now in New York City. Whereas, like, oftentimes we would, at those restaurants I worked at, we would miss entire seasons. It's like, oh, I really want to do something with watermelon because I love watermelon. Okay, cool. But that you can't just... You can't just put good watermelon sorbet on a plate because it's just friggin' sorbet. It's like, well, it's like, well, that that belongs at this restaurant or that restaurant, and it's like, well, what the hell do you do? And next thing you know, watermelon was out of season. And you didn't do shit with it. But you've got a whole year <laughs> to come up with like the narrative of your dish. That sure. You're gonna, like, yeah, it's <laughs> it it's it, it it it's a pain in the ass. It, it really is thinking about food that way. It's fun, but it's a pain in the ass. So as you approach a new restaurant, are you like, okay? I am writing new recipes. I am working on new ideas or, you know, like what is that process like creatively as you approach a new venture? Yeah. Um, a hundred percent. The thing that, cause Empeonza is slightly successful now, there becomes pressure, um, within the company or like within your own employees of like, okay, well, we're going to just do our greatest hits. We know it works and we have like sales data on it. So these are the dishes we should do. Um, we're not going to repeat any dishes in the new place. We're going to do, um, an entirely new menu. Uh, and for me now that the creative process is not just the menu, it's also what's the restaurant look like? Um, like when Pete Wells reviewed us at Cocina, he had some very valid issues, which he was like, okay, well, you're telling me the food should be shared, but you're making this shit impossible to share. And it's like, fine, everything's on a a beautiful plate, but the beautiful plates are too big for the friggin' table that you're putting me at and you're plowing course and course into course. And that was true. And I, I wasn't thinking about anything on the guest side. And I know that sounds awful. I was just thinking like a chef. I was like, all that matters is food. My food's badass and it looks good going out the kitchen at the end. Whereas now I think about everything equally. So what does the dining room feel like? And are plates going to fit on the table? And is, is the dish you're making appropriate on that plate? Or what music are they listening to there? Is the place appropriate where it's like, well, if I'm, if I'm wearing a suit, cause let's, okay, you're in Midtown. I might be wearing a suit. Does it feel good for that? Okay, but then now I'm in Midtown, but I'm not where I, I didn't wear a jacket and tie today, but I want to go there. Does it feel okay for that too? And that's like, a, you got to be careful. Like how, how big are the tables? They have to be good for uh, a, like a secret Tinder date. And they also have to be that same size has to be appropriate for um, someone trying to close a deal. So there's a lot of psychology that goes into it. Do you like thinking about that stuff? I love it. Like, it seems it, like a fun puzzle. Yeah, and it's it it starts. I I can start to see where it's like chef turns into restaurateur. I can I can start to see it. it's like well, you are a chef, but I mean, come on, you're not the chef anymore. Like the, the chef is being a chef is of a kitchen is like watching a, a six month old child. Sometimes it can be a little bit boring once you get the hang of it, but the second you stop watching it, 
the the child falls off a set of steps or falls off the couch and starts screaming. So you've just described a lot of restaurants in Manhattan specifically, <laughs> by the way. So the chef's got to watch it. So the the chef's the chef. So then to that point, I'm not the chef anymore. I'm I, I'm the boss of the chefs, but they're they're doing it. So then what are you? And then, yeah, you have to step back and look at the entire environment. And it is exciting. Um, like it, it lighting matters. Yeah. Sound level matters. Like your food will taste better in a well-lit room. I can't prove that, but I believe it to the point that we invest in it now. Yeah. Well, because the way things taste is often the least important part about how they taste. Sure. Or, or like, I mean, again, back to environment, if you walk into a temple or a church or whatever, you're going to, for the most part, behave like you're in a church. If you're walking to a hospital, you're going to behave like you're in a hospital. So I do believe that when you go to eat barbecue, what, like it should feel like a barbecue, like it should be like picnic tables and they should be beat up and like you should see chalkboards there. Like that it sets th your expectation. That gets me in the mood yeah. to eat barbecue. Like now I'm excited for it. So um, it, it's all very interesting to think about. So do you miss calling yourself a chef? I mean, you still call yourself a chef. No, I, I still do. And I, I mean, I still cook. Uh, no, I, I don't. It's just for me, it's, it's, again, it's the evolution of, and I'll talk about Grant Ackett's again. It's like, okay, well, I'm, I'm a great chef and I know how to cook good food, but like you can see at one point he was like, okay, well, what about the plate that it's going on? Right. I'm going through every catalog of plate where there's nothing out there that I want. So you have to employ a full-time designer and start making your own stuff. That's exciting. It's just another. When you read that Pete Wells review where he's talking about the plates or the music or whatever. What was your kind of initial reaction? Were you like, you're wrong? Or, and then realizing that changes you had to make? Or um, I was uh, I was like, you know what? Shit. Uh, honestly, I was like, he's right. Like we, we started, I, we just started doing it. We just started putting the plate we're out there. And it's like, this doesn't fit on the table. And we're, we're not giving people a minute to enjoy it. And if we're telling people to share it, we're not constructing in a way where I could scrape it onto my plate and have some left over for the other person. It's just simple mechanics. I mean, that that's, that's no different than like, by the way, here's a pizza, but I'm not going to cut it. Right. There you go, guys. Have fun. Well, what the shit is that? It could be the best pizza <laughs> in the world, but like how, like it starts creating tension and anxiety amongst the diners. So it was actually, uh, a, like, and sometimes you need to read it in a review. Like sometimes, like I wasn't, I wasn't a mature enough person to, to think about that in advance. Um, I needed to hear Sam Sifton say that Takaru is the loudest fucking restaurant on earth and they need soundproofing in a really friggin' bad way. And we had it next month. I mean, we, we had it. I was like, shit, you're right. Like this place is loud as fuck. I mean, it's, I think it's a really important creative lesson and it's a hard one to learn. I don't know. As an editor, a thing that I often say to my writers is like, so I, I frame it a little bit more delicately than I'm about to put it. It's like, it doesn't really matter what you say. The only thing that matters is what people read. Mm -hmm. And so if you're not thinking about how it lands, then you're, I mean, you're not going to be there with them to hold their hand and like explain why they're misunderstanding you or explain like they should be liking this part. Like, why aren't you liking it? Like, it's your job to make sure that people enjoy what you're putting out there. And that means you have to think about them. hundred percent. And de dissemination uh, ultimately leads to dilution. So serve a dish on the casting table, you make it, you explain it, there's zero dilution. Um, open a restaurant with 25 servers, all of those 25 servers are snowflakes. They're all human <laughs> beings, like one's hungover, one's late for work, one's really great at their job, one really sucks at their job and you want to fire them, but you haven't found their replacement yet and you don't want to throw off the schedule, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. Like start passing all that shit through that filter and then see if the customer gets it. You're right. Like, so 
you have to edit it way more on the back end. You have to be very careful how you write the script. Yeah. You just sort of make sure it lands the way you want it to land, which is a hard awesome. Approach. I love that. I love it. Valuable lessons. All right. So Alex, we've come to the time in the Eater Upsell that we call the lightning round. Oh, geez. Okay. Yeah. Nothing to be. Well, you can be afraid of it. If you it's going to be so. fantastic. You should not be afraid. We're just going to ask scary. you some questions. We ask everyone that comes in here these questions. Just the first thing that comes out of your mind. Just say it. Okay. So, so question number one is when you walk into a bar that you've never been to before, what is the drink you order to test out how good the bar is going to be? Oh, geez. Um, I don't have a good answer for this one. I'm, I'm a, I'm a Negroni drinker. So that's usually my, if I don't know what I'm going to drink, that's what I, I'll get a Negroni. And if the Negroni's really good, I'll then start looking at the rest of the cocktail menu. If it's not, then I just default to gin and tonics. That seems like a strong strat. Negronis are a good place to start equal measures and yeah. stuff like that. Cool. So you have an hour to kill in an airport. What do you do? What's your strategy? Um, <laughs> it, an airport is the only time I ever buy magazines. And I always buy dumb, like I always buy like men's health with, and I labor under the illusion for an hour that I'm going to start exercising <laughs> or being healthy in any way, shape or form. And then I get on the plane and I look at like, I don't I look at like two pictures and then I fall asleep. Well, <laughs> I like that. It sounds like, you know, you want to use that to be productive or something. Yeah. You know? And it doesn't like my wife's like, why the shit are you buying magazines? You're never like, you're never going to change your life. This is so stupid. Like, so. Um, on a weeknight when it's your turn to cook dinner, what do you make for your family? Um, I cook a lot of, uh, oddly, uh, a lot of Italian at home or Italian-esque with no real focus. Um, like we always have dried chilies and Parmesan cheese and chickpeas and dried pasta or polenta. So it's usually something in that realm. If you were not a chef slash restaurateur, what would you be doing with your life? Um, lately, it might have been it might have been architecture or interior design. Um, the more restaurants we do, I, I really start to appreciate the idea of building something um, uh, permanent or semi-permanent that human beings are going to interact with um, on both a conscious and a subconscious level. So you have a road trip. It's a day-long road trip. You're by yourself in the car. You're gunning down the highway. You're playing some music and you're singing along to it. What is it? Lately, that would be um, Nine Inch Nails, The Fragile, that album, that <laughs> whole album. classic. Yeah. Classic. And that, that's real. Like I've dusted off that album just recently. And that, that's actually embarrassing. Like, cause I'm kind of a metalhead. So like black metal and death metal, that's kind of considered nine inch nails is kind of considered sissy. Cause yeah. it's like synthesizers <laughs> and shit, but, um, it's uh, oddly dark and yet somehow, um, empowering the same way. Like, a I don't know, like a pop song is. I, I, I respect that. I respect <laughs> the shit out of that. That's really strong. If there were some kids sitting right in front of you, like some 17 year old, you're their role model. They want to be just like you when they grow up. What's the piece of advice that you drop for them? Um, take your time and, and be respectful. And that, that, would be, that would be the best advice I can give. It applies outside of the culinary world as well. <laughs> cool. That. Well, hey, Alex, thanks so much for coming and chatting with us today. Thanks for having me. Real yeah. pleasure. Alex Stupak, chef of many Empeo and restaurants in New York and the author of one of the best named cookbooks of all time, <laughs> Tacos, colon, Recipes and Provocations with Jordana Rothman. Cool. Thanks for coming by, Alex. Thanks for having me. If there's anything that you want me and Greg to talk about on the Eater Upsell, anything you want us to ask our guests or anything that you want us to weigh in on about your personal life, whether it's food-related or not, drop us a line at upsell at eater.com. Our producers are Patrick Bolger and Maureen Giannone. Our associate producer is Daniel Janine. 
Our studio team is Alec Ulrich and Miles Ewell, and our editor-in-chief is Amanda Clute. And we are your hosts. I'm Greg Morabito, and that wonderful person over there is Helen Rosner. 